brother Simon. Thank you that he has given up time and that he has that desire to preach your word. God, may he be faithful to it this morning. May we have ears and hearts ready to receive. God, help us, transform us, help us see the glory of your word tonight, uh, this morning. Amen. Well, good morning. Nice to be back. There's many churches I've only ever been to once, so it's a uh, Really nice to come back and uh, have the chance to share with you again. Greetings to you from Hillview Church. For those who don't know who I am, uh, my name's Simon Duan. I'm the pastor at Hillview, and I've been there for about three years now, just over three years, and I'm slowly learning. Ah, is that better? Okay, quite a way. Sorry, too loud. <laughs> so, um, greetings from Hillview. I've been there three years now. I think I'm slightly learning the West Country accent, but I'm not quite there yet, um, but it's been good to to uh, kind of get to know people in this area and to be here. So, um, amazing passage. And uh, many preachers, when they come and, and share uh, on a passage like this, they kind of they spend the week uh, thinking things through and reading commentaries and kind of uh, polishing their kind of their thinking. Uh, and I thought it would be good for me just to share with you, because you've probably heard seen this, read this the first time maybe today, um, and haven't had the time that I've had. What were my initial reactions when I, when I came to look at this passage, when I heard that uh, this was the passage that uh, uh, Abbey Church had given me to speak on this Sunday? Uh, and I thought it would be good for you to hear this because you may have the same questions. My first response was this. When I realized the passage and I saw the title about earnest prayer, I thought about my own prayer life. And I thought, oh, I really better make sure my prayer life is on it the week that I'm leading up to speaking. Uh, uh, and truth be told, when I think about my own prayer life, and I compare it to the prayer life that I read about in the people in the book of Acts, I feel inferior and I feel that I, I've got, I lack so much when it comes to prayer. And so I thought I'd better make sure my prayers were earnest this week before I came and share God's word with you. And, and then I tried to remember if I had any brilliant stories uh, of God supernaturally kind of coming in and doing something amazing uh, like we read about today. And, and I was struggling, if I was honest with you. Uh, to come up with a great story like that. And it made me wonder, do I ever pray those big prayers? The prayers of God to intervene in a situation that almost looks impossible. And I started to ask myself that question. Uh, and then I had a question. I, I looked at that passage and I thought, uh, why was Peter rescued and James was beheaded? Did the church really not like James? Did they not pray for James? What was going on there? Maybe Peter was uh, uh, God's favourite and James wasn't. Um, and it made me kind of think of some questions a little bit like that. Uh, it made me think, I wonder if others like me sometimes wonder how prayer works and whether sometimes prayers are answered and why they're answered and sometimes prayers don't seem to be answered and wrestle, maybe like me, with the whole area of prayer. And then I started to ask a whole bunch of questions like, what is this passage here for at this moment in the book of Acts? What is the significance of it in, in that, that bigger story that's running through this whole book, Luke's second kind of book about the growth of the church? Why has Luke included it? What does it say to you and to me and to you as a church at this moment in time? And so there were a few of my initial thoughts. And so what I want to do is share a, a kind of uh, in two halves with you. I play football with some of the guys from Abbey. We don't have a half time. Um, but uh, the first half I want to share with you and just go through the story a little bit more with you, with a, a few thoughts and reflections. I want to take you into the story and hopefully take the story into you a little bit more 
as we explore it together. And then the second half, I just want to share what I think are some applications that are coming out of what we see in God's Word. Often uh, in, the, in the role that I do, and those who are in similar roles will know, you're out quite a lot of evenings. So I often come back about 9.30, 9.45, 10 o'clock, and my son and my daughter and my wife are watching some kind of drama. And, and I want to join in, so I, I get them to pause it and to explain to me what's happened so far. You know? And they do their best to try and give me a, a picture of the story so I can sit there and watch maybe the last 20 minutes with them and try and understand what's going on. So we're going to do a little bit of that together because we pick up this story in the middle of this book. We're just coming to the, kind of the end of the first half of the book of Acts. And so what's happening so far? What's happening so far? It's been a story of God's power, a story of this fledgling movement of the church growing and starting in all kinds of places and cities, right back from the dramatic arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and uh, that had been promised the power from on high that Jesus had promised and overspilling and overflowing into the streets. And you remember Peter's amazing sermon where 3,000 people were added to the number of the church in that moment. And then if you look back in your Bible, in the book of Acts, you'll see amazing descriptions of the life, a challenge to us as we sit here today, the life of the early church and the way that they shared life together. They did fellowship together. They were in each other's homes together. They shared possessions together. An amazing picture of that quality of life of the early church we see peter and john in chapter four he carried on that healing ministry of jesus and facing off the authorities and saying uh, there's no other name under heaven or earth that you can be saved except by jesus and we see this kind of growth of the church and then the challenges towards that growth as well uh, stephen's amazing speech before he then uh, becomes the first martyr overseen by a passionate Pharisee called Saul, we see then that guy's transformation, don't we? And uh, how God meets him and turns his life around. We see in Acts 8, the first African convert. And, uh, and then Peter's vision, just before this passage we come to, where he has this vision where God challenges him about his thinking and says, actually go out, go out beyond your boundaries, beyond your nation to those who are non-Jews. And then we come to this passage here. So follow it through me. Have your Bible open as we look through this. Here's a few thoughts. First of all, the key players in this passage, this guy Herod, we, we know we're more familiar with the disciples, Peter, James, and a little bit later on, Paul's mentioned as well. But this was the king at the time. He was the overseer at the time. And uh, uh, he's obviously been to the gym looking at the statue there. Uh, I meet some people when I go to the pure gym just down the road in East Avenue. I meet some people who look very much like that in the scary bit of the gym, uh, the bit that I don't go to where it's the, the, the free weights and the kind of a got long arms and they kind of strut around like this in front of the mirrors. Um, he looks a little bit like that. He, his, his dad was, uh, uh, his granddad, sorry, was Herod the Great who slaughtered all the infants when Jesus was born. And uh, his granddad killed his dad as well. So there's kind of a, a strong kind of violent streak in this family. Uh, he was only three when his dad was murdered. And so this is the guy that's in charge. This is the guy that's, uh, that's ruling this region on behalf of Rome. This is the guy whose job it is to kind of keep peace at this time, to keep the Jews happy so that he keeps the Romans happy. And we find out in, uh, in verse 3, he's a people pleaser and he loves power. That's quite a dangerous combination, a people pleaser and someone who loves power. And then as we read on, we see that suffering comes to the church. There's been glimpses of that early on. And this is quite significant suffering. So one of the key guys, one of the three that spend the closest time with Jesus, James, gets beheaded by Herod. 
He loses his life in, in a horrific way. And then Peter, because uh, Herod realizes this pleases the Jews, he grabs Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem time, the head man, and he imprisons him. And so he takes every human precaution. Look at what he does here. Four squads of soldiers, verse 4. He kind of makes sure there's no chance, humanly speaking, of him escaping. Sixteen soldiers around this one guy. Some of you watch those kind of hero films. You know, 16 to 1, even in a hero film, is a little bit outnumbered. Herod wants to make sure his prize catch cannot get away. And so suffering comes to the church. And that question of suffering is an interesting one, and we'll come back to it in a moment. It's a tough one. There's a mystery to it. It's the most often question asked on the Alpha course, is the whole question of suffering. And I actually think it's probably the most often question asked by Christians too, as they sit there and go through suffering. I don't think the questions are that different. We might come to different answers. But actually, I think we all wrestle with suffering. Uh, and my experience as a pastor is that suffering, when it hits Christians, seems to move them towards God or away from God. It seems to have a kind of Marmite effect as suffering hits and suffering comes to these people. And following Jesus, and you will know this, and many of you will know this because you're living through this or have lived through this, that following Jesus doesn't mean a suffering-free life. Um, I go down the aisle sometimes when I'm um, buying things for people at church. Uh, the free-from aisle, you know that? Free from this and free from that, and the gluten-free, and you have to find special foods for, for people and all that kind of stuff. Following Jesus, there's no free from suffering when it's following Jesus. Pick up your cross, Jesus says. Not your flip-flops and your beach towel. Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. The church suffers. Why Peter saved and James dies, Luke doesn't answer. He doesn't even attempt to answer, actually. But I think we can be certain it's not a sign that somehow God loves Peter more than James. There's a mystery in suffering. But this double blow must have had a shattering impact on the church. Can you imagine this fledgling movement? They lose two of their key guys. A double blow like that. Can you imagine what that must have been like for them? The agony and the hurt. And so what do they do? They pray. They pray earnest prayer. What a great phrase. That phrase, earnest prayer, is the same word to use as an athlete kind of running, straining, striving, all kind of muscles and sinews, going for it. It's the same word that Luke used to describe that agony as Jesus was wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. That earnestness in terms of prayer. The church steps together and prays. It prays with a passion and an intensity. And it's no accident. Follow the story through. Look at what happens next. There's that kind of connection there. As the church prays, there's a couple of other things going on. This one blows me away. Peter sleeps. I don't know about you, but when uh, I got married, I, I never thought that actually have sharing a bed with someone was going to be such a challenge and was going to be such a negative impact on sleep. Um, some of you may know this, you know, but if you, if you have someone who's a restless sleeper and you're not, they're moving about all over the place. And my wife decides always to sleep in the middle of the bed. I get a bit this bit, and it gets smaller and smaller throughout the night. She would hate me for saying this, but she snores. As well, sleep is a really hard thing to come by. You know, at the best of times, even in a lovely double bed in a house. And there's lots of things that stop me sleeping, including her sometimes. Sleeping in a tent. It's a bit of a Gloucester thing, caravanning and going out in tents. I don't know what it is, but I don't understand it. 
God's given us the ability to build houses and apartments and hotels and, and amazing things like that, yet people choose to go and sleep on canvas, under canvas, and uh, on little tiny mats like that. Uh, and we went to Soul Survivor this year, and uh, the last three years we've taken the young people away, and it's, and it's brilliant. And, and I survive it because of what God does there in people's lives. But sleep, no. Rarely happens. It rarely happens. And sometimes when I've got big things in my mind, I don't know about you, but, but I struggle to sleep. If I'm worried about something, if I'm anxious about something, it can rob me of sleep. Yet look at what happens here. Peter, he's changed to 12 men. He's not just sharing a bed with his wife. He's chained to 12 other soldiers. He's in a prison cell. I can't imagine a prison cell was like an apartment or a hotel. He's got something on his mind. He probably knows he's going to be executed tomorrow. Yet, he sleeps. That blows me away. I don't know about you. He must have had an incredible confidence and a peace in God that whatever God was going to do or not going to do, he trusted him. He had a confidence in what goes on. Peter sleeps. And then look at what happens next. God intervenes supernaturally. Look at what happens in verse 17 onwards. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story, isn't it? God supernaturally breaks in through an angel, and you get this kind of... Peter's a bit confused at first. He doesn't actually know whether... It, maybe he's had a really deep sleep. I don't know. But is it a vision? He had a vision before, didn't he? You remember with the sheet that came down with the animals in? So is it a vision? Is it reality? He doesn't really know what's going on. The angel tells him to get dressed and to come out of the prison. And there's that great picture, long before the days of automatic doors, of the kind of the big metal doors of the city gate opening in front of them. What a fantastic picture as God does that and releases Peter. And then as we move on in the story, we get this in quite incredible comedy scene, uh, which has, has that kind of ring of authenticity about it. If this was going to be made up, you would not make up a story like this. Yeah, Peter's in danger, you know. Uh, Herod's against him. He's just been rescued supernaturally, and yet he's left standing in the road. Yeah, in public view, where he could be arrested again. So we get this um, amazing story, this girl Rhoda, and, and uh, the kind of uh, encounter there. He, he knocks and says, I, I can't imagine what he said. You know, it's peaceful, I'm free, God's rescued me. And then she kind of leaves him at the door. You know, all of history. You know, this is her one moment. Poor girl, I can imagine all her friends taking the mic out of her. You're the one, you know, you're the one who left Peter standing at the door. You know, this is what she's known for. And then even more comedy comes because the people who are earnestly praying, the church, the early church, you know, these heroes of faith, they're praying, they're asking God to intervene, God intervenes. He answers their prayers and then <laughs> they go to Rhoda, don't, don't, you're absolutely off on one, you're a complete nutter. The answer's literally standing there on the door. And then when she says, no, 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 he's really Peter. They then go, well, no, it must be his angel. Herod must have already killed him. It must be his spirit kind of floating around and speaking before it goes off to wherever it goes off to. And so you, kind of, you can see this, and it gives me hope. Do you know that? It gives me hope. Because sometimes with my prayers, God answers, and I don't even see it. I don't even know. I'm not even aware of God answering prayer. And uh, we get that great picture, don't we, as... We sang the song, the Charles Wesley hymn of And Can It Be, a great gospel picture of chains falling off and moving from darkness to light, from imprisonment to freedom. What a great picture of the gospel, isn't it? The freedom that we have that God has brought us into through Jesus, that we live out together.
And then as we, finish, as we move and conclude in terms of the story, before I just share with you three brief applications, look at what happens next. Peter lays low. Herod can't find him. He escapes. And, and you get this kind of transfer in the book of Acts from Peter being the leader of the church to James, Jesus' brother, kind of taking a more prominent role there. And so Peter kind of drifts off the scene in terms of his role there. And then Herod wakes up and there's a commotion. I think that's a, it's, a, it's a bit of an understatement there. No small commotion in verse 18. I can imagine Herod being absolutely livid. Can you imagine? His prized asset. He's done everything humanly speaking to protect this prized asset. He wants to kind of please the Jews. He wants to make sure his position in Rome is secure. And yet he wakes up and decides in his murderous way to kill 16 soldiers. I can imagine that uh, the next time Peter or Paul got arrested, uh, the, the soldiers didn't want to go on duty. You know, they would take a step back volunteering for duty to, to look after Paul or, or Peter or whoever. 16 of them die. And then we get this incredible story, don't we? From verse, 20, from verse 19b onwards, where Herod dies. And some people think, oh, the Bible kind of each makes up stuff. Well, Josephus actually records this as well. And he tells us a little bit more detail about what actually happened. Brian, very kindly, when he was clearing out his books before he's moving, gave me his copy of Josephus, uh, the history there. And he says uh, that Herod put on this garment entirely made of silver. And when the sun's rays hit it, it was so resplendent that the response of the people there was to say, oh, wow, he's a god. And obviously, in kind of Roman culture, there was that sense of divinity, wasn't it? If you had power and authority, Caesar, uh, the divine kind of uh, perspective there. And people were so awestruck. And either him being carried away or perhaps to flatter him, they cried out that he was a god. When he didn't rebuke them, Josephus tells us, and God's word tells us together, that he immediately got a severe kind of pain in his stomach and five days it took for him to die. Really quickly, we find out that Herod dies. Look at verse 24. As we come to the end of this story, there was one uh, friend of mine who came up and told me he wanted to do a, a, a teaching series in his church called Great Butts of the Bible. And I was thinking, I'm not sure that's the best title in the world. I, I really don't. But the point was this, the, the, the but in the Bible, the intervention of God in the Bible is really clear. And here we have this amazing thing in verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish the human king the powerful man comes to a gruesome end but the news of the true king jesus himself goes forward goes out continues let me read to you just from isaiah chapter 40 verses 7 and 8 because it kind of captures a little bit about this story doesn't it you might remember this verse all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And you see this great contrast, don't you? So what can we draw from this? What can we draw from this? So I'm a bit behind on the PowerPoint. I was getting a bit excited there. What can we draw? Three things I just want to share with you as we look at this incredible story of rescue. The first is this, that we're in a battle. We're in a battle. Darren's already mentioned that. Um, I caught a new story three years ago, some of you might have, have come across it, about a Japanese soldier who refused to surrender after World War II and spent 29 years in the jungle in the Philippines continuing to think he was still in the war. 
29 years after the end of the war. He died aged 91 in Tokyo about three years ago. He didn't believe the war had ended. And in actual contrast, we can't be like that. The war is continuing. We can't kind of lay down our weapons and go, it's all over. And we're reminded from this passage, aren't we, church, that we're in a battle. We're in a war. We have an enemy, an active enemy, not an equal enemy. It's interesting. Sometimes if you, you know, when you look up pictures and you talk about spiritual battle, there's, there's a picture where there's kind of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling yeah, and looking like they're equal. It's, it's a rubbish picture. There's no equality. Jesus already won the victory. Jesus is the <laughs> supreme God. Satan is a created fallen angel. But we have an active enemy. Satan is on a leash, but he's still got power. He's still dangerous. He's still trying to stop the good news of Jesus transforming lives or stopping growth or isolating us. And if you want to know a little bit more about how he might do that, obviously read God's word, but C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, is fantastic, actually. And the deceitful ways the enemy seeks to pull us away from and what God wants for us. We had an amazing experience. I was uh, saying Soul Survivor. Three 17-year-old boys came to faith from our group. Um, it was a really incredible moment. Uh, one of them just had, I had the opportunity to pray with him sitting in the field because he was like, oh, I'm not going forward in front of people. That's not really my thing. And I said, like, you don't have to go forward. You know, God's here. You can pray now. Uh, and on the last night, my son brought his mate from school. First time he'd ever come to anything like that. And three days earlier, I had a coffee with him. And he said to me, there's no way I'm going forward. It feels like manipulation. And on the last night, uh, there was an appeal for those who wanted to come to Jesus. And this guy got up, Reese. I looked at him, and he walked off, and I thought, I oh, must be going to the toilet. But he turned left towards the stage instead of right towards the toilet. And I was like, oh, he's going forward. I said, get up there. You know, your mate is going forward to receive Jesus. And it's incredible, isn't it, when God does stuff like that? It's just so exciting. And we've got these three 17-year-old boys that we need to disciple and grow and, and try and kind of put their roots down into who Jesus is. What a privilege to be able to do that as a church. And I met all three of them uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks, and we went through the power of the sower, and we talked a little bit about I said, look, you might not know this. You've had some amazing things given to you. You've got uh, forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. You've got a God who lives inside you by the power of his Spirit. You've got an amazing church, a bunch of people a church family to do life with. But you might not realize you've also now got a real active enemy who will seek to do whatever he can in his limited powers to destroy your growth, to snatch away the power of the sower, says, what's grown and sown in his heart. Jesus doesn't fast track us to heaven, does he? He doesn't call us to withdraw from the world. John 17 says this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He wants us in the battle but armed. And we need to recognize we're in the battle. And following Jesus doesn't mean we're immune from the reality of being human in this broken world. As far as I'm aware, the number of Christians that die from cancer and heart attacks is exactly the same as the number of people who are not Christians that die from cancer and heart attacks. We're not immune from the brokenness and the suffering of this world. And there are times, and maybe this was a time for the early church, when it seems like the bad guys win... And the good guys lose. And we look at our world and you think, what? Really? That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Sometimes, and some of you may know this, you come to follow Jesus and actually life gets more difficult and not easier. And we seek to do what God wants and we lose out. We lose out on that promotion or that job or that being one of the, uh, you know, be that friendship or whatever it is. 
But we battle with mental illness. As we reflect on this passage together today, we see there are rev- real, very real forces set up against us, against the good news, good news of Jesus going out. Some are obvious. Herod, uh, as a person, was opposed to the good news of Jesus. Richard Dawkins, in our culture, is obviously, he set himself up against the good news of Jesus. Some are more subtle. Consumerism, trying to live independent lives, is another way I believe that Satan will attack us. We're in a battle. Secondly, Prayer expresses our dependence on God. I've broken my leg twice. You might think that's foolish. But I arrived here at Hillview Church three years ago uh, on crutches um, with a cast up to about here and a titanium rod through my shin bone. Um, so when I was just saying, actually, that uh, I, I love playing football on a Friday because I can still. You know, I managed to be able to get back and run, and, and so I appreciate the joy of still being able to play football um, at my great age. But... Um, when you, for those who've done something like this and have been on crunches before, it's, it's really debilitating. You can't even carry a cup of tea. You have to kind of rely on other people to do stuff for you. And, it, and it, I really didn't like it. I didn't like it the first time and I didn't like it the second time. It's horrible. And I recognize something in me. I'm not very good at depending on others. I'm not very good at not being independent. I like being the one helping others, not the one having to be helped. It's a sign of weakness, isn't it? Particularly with a man sometimes of... Having to ask for help, having to depend on others. I'm sure that's why sat-navs were invented, so that men didn't have to undo the window and ask anyone for directions. But we're called, and this passage reminds us again, we're called to live, leaning on God, dependent on him, and prayer is one of those key ways that we're supposed to do that. People talk about Christianity being a crutch for the weak. Yes, 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 it is. I'm weak. I can't live the kind of life that God wants me to do without God and knocking you. We all need to depend on God. We can't live that kind of life. And prayer is an incredible gift that God gives us. I'm so disappointed most of the time with my own prayer life. I'm so much in a hurry. I I love reading the Bible because the Bible's kind of there and you can write stuff down and you can study it and you can read commentaries. And prayer, it's hard. Spend time praying. What have I actually done? What have I got to show for what I've done? I don't know about you, but if you're an activist, prayer's really, really difficult. I'm the kind of person who who likes having things on a to-do list. And a great joy for me is ticking things off my to-do list. I love that. Some of you might relate to that. Sometimes I'm so weird that I write things that I've already done that I didn't have on my to-do list so I can cross them off again. I kind of organize my life backwards in reverse. Prayer, in many ways, is not tangible, is it? But it's so vital, it's so important for us. Lots of books tells us, tells us that prayer changes us, which is true. But we see here, prayer changes things. Prayer changes situations. And through prayer, through the prayers of the church, God gets stuff done. John Piper, in Desiring God, said this, until you know that your life is at war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is, the, is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. John Wesley said this, I'm convinced God does nothing except into answer to prayer. You've had 
example here through the situation with Ben. Obviously, you, you guys at the church have been praying about that, and God's come and intervened and, uh, uh, and kind of put that together. I'm sure you've got other in, individual answers about the way that God has intervened and, prayed and answered prayer. We're called to be a praying church. At Hillview at the moment, we have stepped back and we're reflecting on our corporate times of prayer. And I was under the impression that there was some kind of golden age where kind of all the church gathered together to pray. And it's kind of, in the last few years, it's kind of, just kind of petered out and gone downhill. And, uh, and the older ones kind of look at me like it's my fault, you know. And uh, so we've been reviewing prayer. And I spoke to one of the older guys at the church and I said, you know, tell me what, what happened. And he said, there was no golden age of prayer. It's always been tough. It's always been, you know, a handful of committed guys. But we're called to pray together. You know, I think we do need to look at the way we do our corporate prayer and the way we used to do our corporate prayer, church meetings maybe in a big circle together. I think we need to be maybe more creative and and find other ways to engage in terms of prayer. But we must be a praying church. James, uh, this successor, Peter, uh, Jesus' brother, said in his letter, you don't have because you don't ask. And prayer is vital for our ongoing relationship with God. But it's also vital to accomplish what God wants in this world. Basically, prayer is the most natural response of a dependent heart on God. And I don't know whether you agree with me on this. If you're really counting on God to do something, you'll pray about it. If you think you can do it, or someone else can do it, or you can do it in your own strength, you're probably not going to pray about it. You think by uh, your own clever thinking or your wisdom you'll get yourself out of a situation or you're trusting other human beings to come through, then you probably won't pray. Or if you, will, if you do pray, it will just be kind of meaningless words. There's power, isn't there, in uniting together in prayer, praying for others and with others. I'm challenging myself and other people in Hillview. Don't just say, I'll pray for you and then walk away. Pray with them in that moment as they've shared whatever they've shared. There's a power, isn't there, of praying with people, with others. Lisa just shared with me that it's the first time she's prayed out loud in community group last week. I was like, that's so amazing. There's something that happens, isn't there, when we pray together, when we, we I don't know, I can't explain it, but I've been there and someone's prayer triggers off a prayer in me and my faith rises. And, and the power of God seems to come and, and I don't know what it is, but praying with others. Our hearts unite, we agree together uh, on earth and in heaven. We spark off other prayers. It, it helps me grow in my prayer life. I get to know the other people better. I get to see Jesus more because I see something through their prayers of Jesus that I couldn't see in the way that God's made me and wired me. Tim Keller observes in his really good book on prayer, he says, by praying with friends you'll be able to hear and see facets of Jesus that you've not yet perceived. Pray with others. And God intervenes in this situation in response to the prayers of the church. It's not a magic formula. There is and there will always be a mystery in prayer, won't there? But we're called to pray, to pray earnestly, together, for God's kingdom, for his will to be done. That's great words in the Lord's Prayer. Samuel Chadwick, in his book, The Path of Prayer, says this, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. There's no power like that of prevailing prayer. 
God is not limited by the prayers of his people, but he works through our prayers. See that clearly. And then lastly, as I come to a close, and maybe most importantly, we understand from this passage that God is in charge. God is in charge. So if you forget nothing from what I've said, take this home with you as you go into your week, as you go into your world, as you go into your situation. Uh, as a teacher, I used to be a PE teacher. I did a sports science degree like Ben, actually. Um, we've got lots in common, I think, and I'm looking forward to having a coffee with him tomorrow and to get to know him better. But as a teacher and as a parent of little ones, there's certain words that you dread, and one, or sentences that you dread, and one of them is this, who's in charge here? Yeah? If you hear that as a teacher from someone maybe in the public or, or whatever, you think, oh, no, what's happened here? Or if your kids are kind of messing about, who's in charge here? You know, it, it's kind of, it brings fear, that phrase to me. But as we look at this and all the coming and going and kind of James losing his life and Peter going into prison and the, and the persecution, we need to take from this passage the reality that God is in charge here. He's sovereign. Nothing and no one can stand in his way. And he acts against those who stand against him and set, them up, set themselves up against him. He opposes the proud and he lifts the humble. Not always straight away. His timing. But he does act. And we see from Herod's life and death that if someone seeks glory for themselves, they are standing in direct opposition against God. They're declaring war against God and there will only ever be one winner. And we see in Herod's life the folly of someone who thinks they can live without God, who thinks that they're not a dependent person, they're not weak, they don't need a crutch. And Luke is reminding us through this passage, God is still in charge. Despite the attacks on the gospel, God is still in charge. That it's an unstoppable gospel. We've seen that in recent history, haven't we? The example of the church in China. The persecution by the communist regime, the atheist communist regime, the, the kind of seeking to push church completely out, the burning of the Bibles, all of that. Yet, research suggests that within a decade... It's like to be the largest Christian nation in the whole of the world, even up more than America. God is in charge. As we look at our world and our country, and sometimes I hear Christians who just despair. Our culture is just going down the pan. God is in charge. He's still in charge. He's still in charge. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Luke closes this section off by telling us how the word of God grows and multiplies and mentions Saul and Barnabas and Mark and their journey to Antioch and when you can read on and see what happens next. So as I come to a close, I want to share this with you. At the beginning of Acts 12, we have James dead. We have Peter in prison. And we have the tyrant Herod basking in popularity and power. And in the end of the chapter, we have Peter free. We have Herod eaten by worms and dead and we have the word of God growing and multiplying and Luke is reminding us that God is in charge the gospel is unstoppable and if you oppose the gospel you might temporarily win but ultimately you will lose and if you stand for the gospel you might temporarily lose but ultimately you will win God is almighty no force on earth can stop the spread of his gospel according to his purpose. So church, let's remember who's in charge. Let's remember who's in charge. The Great Commission, 
which we often talk about, was preceded by the great affirmation. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, as you go, make disciples. God is in charge. Jesus has authority to impact our Mondays, to help us keep going in our tough situations, to drive us to love and boldly share Jesus wherever he's placed us, to hold on to faith despite the suffering we might be going through. God has not given up. The church is not defeated. The wedding banquet of the Lamb has not been cancelled. God is in charge. And may that be increasing the case in my life, in your life, in Hillview Church's life, in Abbey Church's life. Let's remember we're in a battle. Let's stay dependent by praying together with others. And let's remember who's in charge. And commit ourselves again to whatever the cost to the unstoppable gospel of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the reality that Luke has reminded us that you are in charge, that you are sovereign, that the risen Jesus is above all, every other power and authority. We thank you that through the church, your kingdom is coming. Thank you that you choose us and you equip us and you give us this incredible gift of prayer, of connecting and depending on you together as church to get what you want done on earth done. Forgive us for the many times we try and seek and do it in our own feeble strength. And would you come once again and infuse us with your power from on high, the power of your Holy Spirit to live out and proclaim and declare this incredible, unstoppable gospel that is the only hope for this world. We're so grateful we get to be part of all you're doing. Fill us, touch us, empower us once again. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.